Today on Ag News Daily. Ag has been doing a lot that they're not getting credit for. But if you take a look at climate, um, I think the degree of government involvement in that in part will be dependent upon what happens on January 5th in Georgia. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Eleni Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I'm seeing over 2020 vision today. My eye surgery went well. And I am, it's a little bit surreal to be able to see without contacts or glasses on today. I have had either contacts or glasses. I got glasses in the second grade, contacts in the sixth grade. So I don't think there's a day really that I even remember being able to see crystal clear. And uh, hopefully that'll happen one day for me. So again, I'm a little bit jealous of you, but how how long does LASIK last? Are you going to have to get another LASIK surgery done sometime? No, well, I don't think so. It's, it should last until I'm, you know, 60, 70 years old and probably need readers at some point. Otherwise it should last the rest of my life. So it was like a 15 minute surgery, really quick, a little bit of pressure. It was a little bit uncomfortable, but it was like 15 minutes and I was done. So short term pain, I think was worth it. Oh, wow. I did not realize that it only took that long. I think you really hype yourself up for for it ahead of time. And the nurses said that's normal, but yeah, definitely easy. And I'm glad to be seeing 2020 today. Glad to be back on the podcast, Ashton. Well, I'm certainly glad to have you back as well. I was a little bit nervous. I didn't know if we would be able to have a Friday episode, but I am certainly glad that we are, even though it's been a little bit slower of a news day, but one of the big breaking stories, I guess you could call it for today, is Congressman David Scott being approved by the Democratic Caucus to serve as the first African-American chairman of the House Ag Committee. Scott says that he will advance the committee's priorities for trade, disaster aid, climate change, sustainable agriculture, SNAP, crop insurance, small family farms, specialty crops, and broadband. And Scott has served as a member of Congress and the House Ag Committee since 2003, And in the last three farm bills, Scott helped secure disaster aid, food and nutrition program funding, and funding for scholarships for students attending 19, or excuse me, not 19, 1890 African-American land-grant colleges and universities. So this is, you know, just another announcement under the president-elect Biden administration. And we will just continue to keep an eye out as the announcements roll through on you know, who else is going to be a part of that administration? Absolutely, Ashton. And speaking of the administration, we talked about previously on the podcast, I think earlier this week, about a new uh, coronavirus stimulus package, about $908 billion that has been put forth by a bipartisan group of senators, which would include about $20 billion in agricultural spending, is largely speculated to be supported by President Trump, and he indicated that he was ready to sign a deal. He wants to make it happen. Uh, This was a little less funding than what Democrats were hoping for. So there could be a little bit of a holdup there, but folks on the Republican side of the aisle say they're ready to get a deal. They're hopeful that they'll get a deal passed before we see things transition over come January. But it's not really clear yet if a 
if it's likely to pass or not. Folks are saying they want it to pass, but, you know, we have to have a majority to vote on that. Um, so still a little unclear on that, but we'll continue to watch that and see if it does indeed get passed uh, before the end of this year or not. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Delaney, because a farm policy specialist, um, Marin Bozak with the University of Minnesota, has said that in the event that Congress can pass another COVID relief package, he expects more or most of USDA dollars to be nutrition heavy. And I, I definitely think that this new package, if we do get one, is going to be different, especially, you know, because we're really transitioning into a new administration. But he was quoted as saying it would not be surprising to me if most of the money in the new stimulus is allocated to the SNAP program and CFAP if it is continued is nowhere near the levels we have experienced. And I'm not familiar with the SNAP program. Are you, Delaney? Yep. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, it basically replaced food stamps a while back, but it's a program that allows folks... Uh, it's, it's government aid, you know, it's a welfare aid for folks that need help, uh, buying food essentially. So it has been, uh, widely debated for the last couple of years when we saw the new farm bill put it being put together. It was a big point of contention between folks on both sides of the aisle. So, um, it's, it's no surprise, I suppose, that that's what a lot of the money will be allocated for because in the farm bill, the 2020 and 2018 farm bill, I believe it was something like 76% of funding went towards programs like SNAP and only, you know, just under 30% actually goes to funding things that you would think the farm bill would fund. Gotcha. All right. Well, I am certainly anxiously awaiting to see if we do get anything passed, especially since we are in this transition period. Absolutely. Um, and Ashton, picking up here on continued coronavirus news, JBS in Greeley, Colorado, has voluntarily removed about 202 workers with pay because they were deemed vulnerable to COVID-19, according to a company spokesperson. About 32 members of the 3,500 workforce there in Greeley have tested positive for the virus, and they have at the when the plant is um, fully staffed, they've had about 4,400 cases, and they say about 8% of the JBS U.S. workforce was removed with full pay across the country. Um, I'm going to speculate they're a little nervous after what happened with the Tyson facility in Waterloo, Iowa, but they're saying that they're trying to very actively work with local health departments and work with you know, upper management to ensure that their workers don't get sick. Yeah, that's a, a great precaution that JBS is taking. Like you said, Delaney, I think, you know, they might be a little bit nervous on what's been going on within the food processing world. So I'm glad that they're kind of ramping up and protecting those workers, especially with pay. But uh, I just have one small story coming from Brazil um, a ship carrying 30,500 tons of U.S. soybeans was unloading its cargo on Friday earlier today after getting all regulatory permissions and docking at one of Brazil's berths, according to a spokeswoman for the Port Authority. And Brazil sold so much of its soybeans to China that little was left to process internally during the inner harvest period. 
But like I said, it's kind of a, a small story as we're seeing. Um, sorry, let me pick that up. <laughs> Again, like I said, it's just a small story coming from Brazil as those farmers down there are planting their 2020-2021 soy crop right now and will harvest starting next year in mid-January. Yes, they will, Ashton. The trade is going to be watching until that time. I've got one other, one other export-related piece of news here before we chat. Markets, uh, the U.S. exported 1.07 million metric tons of corn during the seven-day period of November 20th through the 26th. Now, the reason this is important because this marked a marketing year high for the 2020-2021 growing season, according to the latest USDA data. This record record uh, purchase, record purchases, I should say, it wasn't all just one purchase, went to countries including China and Mexico as the two largest buyers. But we also saw Japan, Guatemala, and Honduras step into purchase as well. And so we're continuing to see large export purchases. Soybeans were also very strong for that week as well, shipping about two and a half million tons of soybeans for that week. Uh, mostly to China and some unknown destinations. But as we also step in here to talk markets, soybeans and corn are set for their first weekly decline in about five weeks. Um, the first time basically since October that we have seen prices pull back largely due to South American weather and what's going on down there. But uh We've had a pretty good run of things here in the markets, and we'll talk about that pullback on Monday during our Market Monday discussion. But what do you say, Ashton? In the meantime, we talk markets for today. Let's do it. All right. Well, we saw, as I mentioned, markets pulled back today as the December corn contract down five and a half cents to close at two four twenty two and three quarters. The March down six to close at four twenty and a half. In soybeans, the January contract down five and a quarter cent to close at eleven sixty three. March, losing five and a quarter cent to close at 11.65 on the nose. In the Chicago wheat pits, they pull back as well on the day as the March contract shed nine cents to close at 5.75 and a half. The December down seven and three quarters to close at 5.92 and a quarter. Hopping over to the livestock pit, mixed trade today across the cattle complex as the February live cattle contract shed 17 and a half cents to close at 112.40. The April down 12 and a half to close at 116.17. And in feeder cattle, as I mentioned, continued mixed trade as the January contract shed just two cents today to close at 139.77. The March up 10 to close at 139.42 and a half. And mixed trade in the lean hog market as well as the February contract shed 35 cents to close at 66.57. The April up two cents to close at 70.50. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, January shedding 24 cents today to close at 15.74. The February down a dime to close at 16.45. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in what we're talking about for today's interview. Today, we are featuring part two of that post-election analysis session from NAFB 2020. Jay, staying with you on the small issue of climate and this new administration and how that will impact agriculture, which really has the greatest control over the mass land mass of the United States of any sector. Um, 
Will U.S. farmers and or ranchers be included in the climate policy that's set up? Are we all going to get a seat at the table? And will there be any opportunities for agriculture if climate change becomes policy of this administration? Uh, so the answer is yes, I think will be included. Uh, for some people, uh, they will love it, and some it's going to be kicking and screaming. Um, there's no way that we can really avoid that. Uh, any discussion about, uh, in, 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 for example, in a Biden policy uh, document, they discuss what they, they see as the opportunities for us to improve that. That's by creating some set-asides for land or expanding CRP-type programs. That's not the language they use, but that in reality is, is what they're discussing. Uh, maybe changing some of the crop base uh, in the United States. Well, last time I checked, farmers and ranchers don't tend to like being told what to do. Uh, they don't mind being compensated for that. And so it probably depends on how that plays out, whether or not they weigh in. Um, around the world, though, there's no question that um, certain industries are seen as um, negative climate contributors, and some are seen as positive climate contributors. And I think that's how you separate that line at the end of the day. Uh, the livestock, the cattle industry specifically, uh, just got butchered in, in the, the Paris Accord in that conversation, and uh, not the way that they wanted to. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you're a soybean grower or a corn farmer, you could see a lot of ways that you could do that. I would just remind everybody that we had a big debate over carbon sequestration in the U.S. Congress once before. And uh, I worked on that issue a lot during that time period for people that were supporting um, the, the outcome of that to be positive. And honestly, it was kind of amazing just to watch that conversation die as individual entities began to just drop off when they realized that the golden goose was laying smaller eggs than they thought it would or that their requirements for doing something were going to be a little more extensive than the payments that they received. And so uh, I, I tend to think that these are discussions that uh, they sound great and, and you know, lofty uh, in the beginning. Uh, when the rubber meets the road is when we'll see how it breaks out and, and we'll be surprised there would be no question about it. We'll be surprised, and the final details will probably determine who ends up being the supporter uh, in the end. Mike Torrey from Mike Torrey & Associates, your clientele in the agricultural trade, representing them, what do you think their greatest concerns are about whether or not agriculture is benefited or harmed by policy on climate change and the new administration? Well, first, I would say that there's organizations out there in agriculture that are already being proactive on this issue. And I would combine climate with environmental work. I mean, a look at, for example, what EDGE is doing in the upper Midwest, and that's a very volatile area in terms of water quality and from an environmental standpoint. Ag has been doing a lot that they're not getting credit for. That if you take a look at climate, um, I think the degree of government involvement in that in part will be dependent upon what happens on January 5th in Georgia, where the majority of the Senate will be determined at that time. I mean, most folks now think that somehow the Senate's going to be Republican controlled, but that's not necessarily the case. So taking a look at that, 
Um, I do believe whatever happens, obviously, this administration will rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. And for agriculture, who's already working together in Washington, D.C., to try to come up with voluntary based solutions that allow for cost recovery, albeit to the earlier point, that cost recovery may not be exactly what folks hope for, but still trying to find a process that allows this to be as voluntary in nature as uh, possible and reward farmers for a lot of practices they're already engaging in. So the hope is, again, going back to social economics, um, how can we have a balance and act? So it's going to be close. to Short answer question for both of you that's um, hypothetical but interesting. Do you believe agricultural production in this country is going to expand or contract over the next four years based upon climate policy. Mike? Agriculture production will expand just because it has to. Um, and the technology is um, such that it's going to continue to give it more opportunities to do so. I think the real issue is going to be whether government decides that they want to revisit supply controls. And there are folks that are in Congress or were in Congress that have offered up that that's probably a policy to consider. At this point, I don't think it's real unless we move into the farm bill, which, again, is in 2023. But if we approach that time period and we're suffering from low commodity prices and a tough farm economy, all the listeners know that that's always a conversation that's had. But that'll be against the backdrop of of um, uh, the ability to produce more few food with uh, fewer acres. Jay, what about you? Do you feel like ag production will expand or contract over the next four years because of what we project we'll do on climate policy? Um, I think there's no doubt, um, including or not including climate policy, that we will increase uh, agriculture's uh, capacity in food, fuel, and fiber uh, across the board. Um, the, the, the reality is, is we have a growing world population, we have a growing consumer base, that demand is, um, is going to drive supply. And U.S. farmers maybe as, and ranchers, is, maybe as well as anybody in the world, always rise to that, to that demand. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I actually just believe that we're going to see an expansion from an agricultural perspective, almost regardless of what the public policy components are. Uh, other than some really extreme things that I think, honestly, aren't on the table for, for discussion. Gentlemen, last area, and that is immigration. And it may be last because it's the most unknown or feared or whatever it may be. And, Jay, I'm looking at you. Will there be a change in immigration policy that affects agriculture? And will these immigration restrictions benefit production agriculture or damage it? I don't think that we will see any new immigration laws or formal policy. I do think what we will see um, uh, under a Biden administration becomes some re relaxation uh, on the enforcement side. We may even see uh, some temporary paths uh, for citizenship and other measures that, that are undertaken from an executive order standpoint. And there are segments of agriculture that are short people um, and, and need that need that experience, qualified um, labor. Um, sometimes that's um, uh, within the boundaries of the law and sometimes it's outside of the boundaries of the law. And we shouldn't be afraid to have that honest and open discussion about 
how that really plays out. I do think that within uh, the programs that we've used in the past to supplement that kind of that specialty labor, um, I think we'll probably see some expansion of that, maybe in either administration, uh, honestly, uh, that, that we option that you might see moving forward. Um, I, it's going to take more people to make agriculture function, and I think we'll see that that actually occur. I, I really don't see it being a limiting factor. And I'm not one of the people that buys in that we're going to find some magic holy grail uh, to solve the immigration discussion in the United States. If you believe that, I honestly kind of think you're kidding yourself. Um, and it, it's fun to talk about, but the truth is it's just not going to happen. Mike, Tory, I have noticed in the past that agriculture and organized labor seem to almost line up exactly the same on immigration. Um, and definitely it is a major issue, but let's talk agriculture specifically. What do you think will take place in the new administration on changes in immigration action and policy? You know, everything we've talked about today, I think it all falls against one backdrop and that's economic development. The new administration is going to be coming in, looking at all of these through that filter. So does it help grow the economy, whether it's rural or urban? Or does it hinder it? And clearly one of the limiting factors in rural America is labor. And that applies not just on the farm. It also applies on a lot of food um, companies from a distribution standpoint and a manufacturing standpoint. So the demand for change is there, especially for labor that is on the farmer in that supply chain. The other side of that, though, is you can't move that without dealing with illegal immigration. And therefore, we've always been held up on getting anything done. So to the earlier point, anything that's going to happen is going to have to be done through executive order. I do not believe that there is going to be legislation that passes the House or the Senate in the first two years of this administration. I would see that more as an after the midterm election. But all of us in the supply chain need to work very hard on getting this done. So I believe the efforts are gonna be um, incredibly strong and important to lay the groundwork for future action. Yeah. Gentlemen, let me turn to what I promised earlier, and that is a discussion of personnel. We know that both ag committees are going to go through a major change in deciding who is going to move to their chairmanship and their ranking member. We don't even know which party is going to be which, but let's go to the Secretary of Agriculture job Mike Torrey, let me start with you. Who do you believe are the top candidates for the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in the coming administration? Yeah, well, it's a loaded question, Ken, but thank you for that. Um, obviously, the list that we've compiled as a team, I think we have 15 names on that. So as I was going through it, reflecting up on your question, I would offer that former Secretary of Ag Tom Bilsack, I think, is going to have a little bit of influence on this conversation with President-elect Biden. And I think most of the folks in agriculture know that that position needs to be someone, especially for this administration, as they're heading into a midterm election, which is going to be a challenge um, for them, as any midterm election is for a newly elected president. But they're going to need somebody that farmers uh, respond to and listen to. So if it's through that filter, I'm going to offer up the name that's most popular, most often discussed, and that's Senator Heidi Heitkamp former Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota. I would add one um, one thought, and I do think it's a long shot, but if they decide to go um, um, with somebody who definitely um, understands ag, that um, as much as Senator Heitkamp, 
But I would add Colin Peterson to that list. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll use USDA maybe as a diversity hire of some sort, however you want to measure that. Um, and then, of course, um, Congresswoman uh, Marsha Fudge um, from Ohio um, uh, could be, if they decide to go with someone more nutrition focused, um, could be a pick as well. May I ask you, would she leave Congress to go to this or would she try to move and actually move very high in the in, in taking over the House Ag Committee? I, I don't know her well enough to be able to offer a view on that. I'm just trying to be a little bit um, speculative for your listeners. Well, she's very smart and she is very good at what everything I've seen her do. So uh, but she comes to the food and nutrition side. And that is totally against what's happened so far. Jay, let's put the bullseye on you here. What do you think will happen on who the next Secretary of Agriculture candidates will be? So I, I think I agree uh, that under a Biden administration that they will be looking for uh, diversity in that cabinet, right? That's something that they've talked about. I do think that USDA may or may not fall under that category. If they don't, I do think Michael Skew's uh, name pops back up as one of the people that we may see again. He's held a leadership role inside of uh, uh, USDA before, people knowing uh, he's not an unfamiliar face. Uh, and I, and again, I think that certain people like Tom Bilsack and others in that circle uh, will have some familiarity with him. Um, I also think that, honestly, I think uh, California uh, Ag Commissioner, or I'm not for sure the exact title there, but Karen Ross uh, comes in. She's a name that we've all, we, everybody in D.C. knows her. So she's uh, she's well-known. She's well-respected. I think there'd be some comfort level with her. And I do agree that, you know, still the odds-on uh, uh, in, in D.C. Uh, favorite, I think, still is is Miss, Miss Heitkamp, um, just because of, who she was in the past and, and uh, you know, the fact that she was a vocal leader. Um, I do think that uh, under a Biden administration, though, that we're going to see somebody come in and the intention will be um, to drive that that mission more towards the food and nu- the, the nutrition side of the, the conversation uh, and, and allow farm programs to uh, kind of run their own. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I know that's not a popular thing to say to a bunch of farm folks in the country um, because we've always loved it. We had some farmer that we knew somewhere out there. He had a pair of coveralls hanging in his in his um, in his cupboard. Um, but the reality is, is that we can hire really strong people uh, at other levels inside of the Department of Agriculture. And if they allow them to really run those programs properly, and we have good economists and, and other folks inside the agency. I think it's possible to do both and do both very well. Uh, it's, it, 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 it should be. Uh, the, two, the two are inseparable in many ways, and uh, we should be able to do both well. We have called on a lot of governors in the past to be uh, Secretary of Agriculture, um, farmers before that time. Um, and uh, I think the one who served... Uh, Obviously, the, the most recently, Tom Vilsack is, is of interest, but he's done his time. Who do you think, what, what role, Jay, do you think Vilsack may play? Will he be a cabinet officer or will he be, be an advisor back behind the scenes? 
Uh, you know, uh, the best uh, the best perspective I get is from some of the people involved in the transition process, and uh, it, it would appear at this point um, he is an advisor, plain and simple. Um, I don't know that uh, I, I do know we all know that he's had his eyes set on higher office. Um, I don't think Ag Secretary was what he meant by that, and uh, I think at some point. We probably see him uh, maybe serving more in an internationally uh, identifiable role in the future. Mike, I don't know how much you know about him. I suspect a lot. But, you know, he's made some pretty good money since he got out of being Secretary of Agriculture. Um, where do you think he'll fit? Will he give up his day job and plunge in again, or will he uh, uh, just be in the background? I don't know the answer to that. Um, what I do know is that I think um, we're all fortunate to have somebody like him that is on the inner circle of the Biden team, somebody who really understands farming and agriculture with his background. And I think with that with that insight that he's providing that group, uh, I think that's a good thing for all of us. I mean, we talked earlier about, you know, some of the challenges, whether it's trade or climate change or social economic policy. And I think having a voice like his to maybe try to help balance that conversation a little bit internally. Uh, anybody that's on a tractor or out there working in the supply chain is going to benefit from that. Mike and Jay, I want to thank both of you for being a part of this. I have one lightning round question for both of you, and that is discounting weather and military conflicts. Will American farmers fare better or worse in the next four years than they did in the last four? Mike. Better. Jay. Better for sure. Well, that's good optimism for both of you. Thank you both very much for being with us for this Newsmaker session of the National Farm Broadcaster Organization's. We hope that you have found this uh, beneficial to you, and certainly with the aspect brought by both of these gentlemen with many years' experience in Washington, D.C. and around the world, it'll give you a broader perspective. It certainly gave me one during this hour. I'm Ken Root. Thank you for being with us. Well, Ashton, I think that was another successful NAFB session. Really interesting stuff ahead of this transitional period we're in right now. And always good to know kind of what's ahead on the horizon. Absolutely, Delaney. And we're always trying to keep up with what's ahead on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So folks, be sure to listen to future episodes as we start to cover some more news as the year is coming to an end. I'm sure we're going to have, you know, a big news dump as we're heading into 2021. So you can listen to us on our website at agnewsdaily.com. And be sure to stay checked in with us on social media at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.